0: Job 22. When I lived down in Florida, my wife and I lived in Florida, including college, Uh, we lived there for about eight years. Uh, She and I were married for for three years or so while we were down in Florida. When I lived in Florida, I had the opportunity every once in a while to go down to downtown Pensacola and attend what this group called the Philosophy Club. Basically, it was a group of pseudo-intellectuals. Most of them were college students from the various universities in the area. There were a few um, uh, young men and women in the military because there was a Navy, there's a, a very large Navy base and an Air Force base there in Pensacola. And they met in the backyard of a vegan restaurant and they talked about philosophy. Well, every once in a while, me and a, a couple other um, Friends of mine were able to go to this philosophy club, and when we did, of course, the conversation turned toward biblical things. They didn't often get to pick the brains of people that knew anything about the Bible, uh, much less believed it, and so this was kind of fun for them whenever we we were able to come. And we would discuss various elements of the biblical worldview, and I remember one particular evening... One of the things that came up was the idea of the goodness of God and what it means to love. See, because one of the problems that many people have as they try to dissuade their own hearts from the truth of God's word is this idea that God is a terrible God, a mean God, that he's a vindictive God, that he's an angry God, that I don't want to have a God like that, that that can't be the same God in the New Testament, that this can't be God, that, that I don't want this sort of a God. And they look back at the Old Testament. And whenever these arguments come up, we, the, the important thing is to get down to the base definition of what it means to love. See, because we know from the Word of God that love is not always about making a person happy. Love is not always about doing what a person wants. Rather, quite the opposite. Love can sometimes be doing what a person doesn't want. It can be doing something that doesn't make them happy, but rather is what they need, what is in their best interests. We have a biblical definition of love that we memorized some time ago. I believe most people that have been in Sunday school can probably quote it in their sleep now. Love, doing what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. That we are doing what is best for the other person regardless of our own self interest, regardless of the circumstances. Now, when we gave this concept of love to the philosophy club, they didn't like that definition very much. See, in contemporary American culture, the idea that love isn't always doing what somebody wants is a foreign concept. The idea that you can love a person by doing something that they don't want. Is difficult. But there was this one girl there. She was in the military. Her name was Charis. It's the same name that my daughter's name is Charis. It's the same name, she just pronounced it differently. Her name was Charis. And as we began to talk about love, and her fellow philosophers began scoffing at us for our definition of love. She said, Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She said, this kind of makes sense. See, because she was a single mother and she had a very young daughter, three years old at the time. She said, I have a three-year-old daughter. And there have been times before where my daughter was about to touch the burner of a hot stove. And I have smacked her hand and told her, no, don't do that. And I have done something that she didn't like. And I am forbidding her from doing something that she wants. But... I'm doing it because I love her. Because I love her, I'm not letting her do what she wants. And not only am I not letting her do what she wants, but I am disciplining her for trying to do it. And so a light bulb turned on in Charis's mind that said, Wow, love isn't always about doing what people want. It's about doing what is best for them. And those are two entirely different things. You know, every day we live, we recognize that doing what is best for someone is not always the same thing as making them happy or making them comfortable. Now, it's easy for us to see this from an earthly perspective. It's easy for me to see as a father that doing what is best, that loving my daughters is not always allowing them to do whatever they want. That loving my wife is not always making her happy. Sometimes, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs tells us. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for a person is tell them that they're wrong. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for a person is tell them that they are sinners on their way to hell and that they need to be saved. But you know, it's more difficult, is it not, to remember this idea of love, this concept of love, the true biblical definition of love, when... God is the Father and we are the child. When God is the one that is having to chasten us in love, when God is the one that is having to correct us in love, or when God is the one that is having to put us through the trials and temptations of life in order to make us better. When it comes down to it, understanding God's working in this world is about, number one, as I just said, understanding, but second, about trusting. And what we're going to see from Job today is a man named Job who not only understood God, but he trusted God. See, Job, and we've seen this all throughout the book, he didn't understand what God was doing. It's not that he understood the circumstances he was in. It's not that he understood what exactly God was doing in his life, but he understood God. He understood the character of God and he trusted God. He trusted God's character, that God's way was better than his way, that God was worth cleaving to, and that even in spite of the circumstances in which he did not understand, he could trust God. It's a matter of trust. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Important lessons from the book of Job about trusting God. And as I have done typically, I'm going to first summarize the arguments that we see, and then we're going to apply. So let's begin this morning by looking at what Eliphaz has said already. We're coming into the third argument of Eliphaz the Temanite in Job 22. In Job 22, verse 1, it says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God? As he that is wise may be profitable unto unto himself. So before we jump into 22, let's remember what Eliphaz has said in the past. Let me refresh your memory. In the first round of debate, Eliphaz gave five points to Job that we talked about. He said, Job, you talk the talk, but you can't walk the walk. When others are having trouble, you can comfort them. But now that you're having trouble yourself, you, you can't handle it. He said then, Job, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Obviously, you're, you're reaping bad things, so you must have sown bad things. You're reaping evil. You must have sown evil. Then he gave the witness of the unknown spirit. Do you remember the witness of the unknown spirit? It's come up a couple of times now, in has? And the witness of the unknown spirit was this idea that man is unprofitable unto God. Then he said that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. That man uh, is just trouble comes. And then finally, in his first argument, he said, Job, you just need to appreciate your chastening. You need to thank the Lord for your chastening, and you need to repent and move on. Well, then we get to the second round. And in the second round, which was in Job 15, the first was in Job 4, the second round, Job 15, Eliphaz says, Job, you have no fear of God. It's clear you don't fear God because you're not repenting of whatever sin it is you might have in your life. He says, Job, your words betray your iniquity. You're calling yourself innocent, but your circumstances are painting you as guilty. And, and so um, you must be guilty. And then again, Eliphaz repeats the testimony of the unknown spirit. And he says at the end that clearly, if, you're do, if, if, wrong, if bad things are happening to you, then you must have done something wrong. And we call that the confusion of a moral society that the blessings of morality make people think that bad things only happen to bad people or that bad things only happen to immoral people. And we talked about the blessings or the, um, excuse me, the confusion of a moral society. And I encourage you, you say, Pastor, I don't remember that. I would encourage you, perhaps go back and listen to the message from Job 4, the message from Job 15, and then this message in a row. And you'll see how contiguous Eliphaz's arguments are all throughout But what I would like us to particularly focus on in our review of Eliphaz's arguments was this witness. The witness of the unknown spirit. All three arguments follow the witness of the unknown spirit's testimony that man is unprofitable to God. Let me read to you from Job 4 and Job 15 what Eliphaz said regarding this unknown spirit last time. Job 4, beginning in verse 15 Eliphaz is speaking. He says, Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. And then he would say in Job 15, verses 15 through 17, this. Behold, he that's God putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man, which drinketh iniquity like water. I will show thee, hear me. And that which I have seen, I will declare. And so with each argument, Eliphaz consistently falls back upon the contention of the unknown spirit that man is wholly unprofitable to God. Now, as I preached through the message in Job 4, I came to the conclusion, and I believe it's a proper conclusion based upon the uh, interpretation of the text, that this unknown spirit was not of God that the testimony of this spirit was not of God. And so as Eliphaz founds his argument for all three of his discourses, the one in Job 4, the one in Job 15, and here in Job 22, all three of them are heavily founded upon the unknown spirit, which I believe is a false spirit. And he continues this argument in Job 22. Let's look at that now as we look secondly at what Eliphaz is saying. That's what Eliphaz had said. Let's look now at what Eliphaz is saying. Notice Eliphaz begins right away by calling upon the claims of the unknown spirit. It's the exact same claim in verses 2 and 3 that we've seen before. He says, Can a man be profitable unto God, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? But this time, Eliphaz is finished tiptoeing around Job. It's time for him to tell it like it is. It's time for him to quit sparing Job's feelings. So he bursts into a tirade saying, okay, Job, the first time he said, Job, you need to repent. The second time he said, Job, it's clear you have sin in your lives. Now he's saying, Job, let me enumerate for you all of the sins in your life. Let me list all of these sins for you in case you don't know them. And he begins this in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, You have taken dishonest money, for thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. In verses 7 through 9, he tells them that he has withheld from the poor and needy. You have not given to the poor. You have not given to the needy in, in their want, in their need, in their lack. In verses 10 through 14, he has confidently felt as though God did not see his sin. Job has pretended and lived as if God didn't even see his sin. And so Eliphaz is enumerating reason after reason. Basically, he's saying this, Job, if you want reasons for your suffering... If you want reasons for why you have boils all over your bodies and you've lost your children and you've lost your livestock and you've lost everything, here's the reason. You think no one saw you in your sin. I don't know what your sin is, but I've just enumerated them. You think no one saw you, but God saw you. You, you can fool man, but you haven't fooled God. Now, this is kind of a tough argument to refute. Not because it is a good argument or an accurate argument, but because it's a baseless argument. It's a hard argument to refute because Eliphaz has never seen Job withhold from the poor and needy. Eliphaz has never seen Job be dishonest with money. Eliphaz has never seen Job act in a pride, proud way, in a way whereby he's acting as though God didn't see him. And yet, though Eliphaz has not seen all of this, he just accused Job of all of it. Eliphaz is basically saying, we don't see your sin, but your circumstances confirm your sin. So quit your self-righteous claims of innocence and just admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've done all of these things wrong. Repent before God so he can restore you. The accusations continue in verses 15 through 20. Eliphaz calls upon Job to learn from wicked men. Wicked men who have gone before. Wicked men who have now been judged for their wickedness. And as we have come to expect in verses 21 through 30, Eliphaz exhorts Job to return to God, saying that when you return to God, God will return to you. Well, I'm not going to take much time to pick apart Eliphaz's arguments this morning because we've done it many times already. We've already gone through all of that and we don't need to repeat this morning. But suffice to say, Eliphaz is wrong. He has never seen Job sin, yet he's accusing Job of sins what he is doing is he is building a false argument around this idea of their false understanding of consequences and we've talked about that before the bulk of our message this morning however is going to focus on job's response to eliphaz's argument and it's a beautiful response and it basically revolves around it basically revolves around one concept that it is enough that God has a plan. It is enough that God has a plan. And we're going to see two, two divisions of this concept. First, Job is going to say in chapter 23, it is enough that God has a plan for me. And second, in verse 20, uh, chapter 24, he's going to say it is enough that God has a plan for the wicked. It is enough that God has a plan. So look with me in Job 23. We, we read it this morning for our scripture reading. Job says in chapter 23, it is enough that God has a plan for me. These words in Job 23 are some of the most beautiful words in all of the book of Job. Look with me again. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. Look at it with me. Job says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept, and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Here is a man who, in the midst of great trial, recognizes that God is in control. That God does love him. Job doesn't know God's reasons and purposes, but he does know God's character. Job doesn't know why he is in the midst of the trials he's in. Job doesn't know why his health is gone. Job doesn't know why his His livestock, his livelihood, his finances are gone. Job doesn't know why he is in these struggles, but he knows that God is a loving God. He knows that God is a faithful God. He says, God, it is enough for me. Though I don't know what's going on, I know who you are. Job doesn't know God's reasons and purposes, but he knows God's character. Job doesn't know what God is doing, but he knows what God is expecting him to do. Then he says, God, I know who you are, and even in the midst of any circumstances, I know what you expect of me. I don't know what you're doing to me, but I know what you expect me to do in your eyes. The lesson Job is teaching here is a lesson which... Even the wisest men have trouble remembering and applying to their lives at times. That God's actions toward us and our actions toward God are not always a one-to-one relationship. They're not always mutual. We don't always know why God is doing something in our lives. We don't always know what God has planned for our lives, but we can always trust God's plan and regardless of what He is doing, we know what He expects of us our obedience, our love for God, our devotion to God should not change with our circumstances. Our obedience to the Word of God is expected to be unconditional. And this is what Job is saying here. He says, I don't know where God is. I can't find Him in verses 8 through 10. But notice what he says in verse 11. My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept. I don't know what God is doing, but what I do know is that whatever God is doing, God is faithful. God loves me. It's for my best. And so I'm going to keep obeying him. I'm going to keep doing what he has called me to do. I'm going to keep obeying his commandments because God's doing what is best for me. You know, we live in a society that glorifies the idea of situational ethics. You do what's best for you, I do what's best for me, and depending on the situation, that might change. Well, God's Word does not reflect situational ethics. What God's Word is reflecting here is that regardless of your suffering or your abundance, regardless of your health being wonderful or your health being terrible, regardless of the situation, we serve God We love God. We obey God. Our obedience to God does not change based upon the circumstances because we know that God is not changing. That God's expectations aren't changing and that God's love for us and God's faithfulness to us have not changed. That whatever these circumstances are that we're going through, that whatever trials and tribulations we're going through, that God knows, that God sees, that God loves us, and that He has our best in mind. And so he says he knoweth the way that I take God sees me and when he hath tried me I shall come forth as gold. The picture there is of the refining process. When a man desires to make pure gold he must take that gold and melt it down and put it in the fire and heat it to the amount that it melts. And when that gold melts, the impurities that are in the gold rise to the top. And then the man who is purifying this gold will take a skimmer and skim the impurities off the top of that gold. And because of the trial that that gold had gone through, because of the fire, because of the difficulty, that gold is now more pure than it ever had been in the past or ever could be without the fire. The fire is what purified the gold. And Job says, I don't know what God's doing here, but I know God loves me. I know God is faithful. And if I obey... If I stay faithful to God and to His Word, I know that this refining process is going to make me more like my God. I know that this refining process is going to make me more usable to God. So he says, I'm going to keep God's way. I'm going to keep God's path. I'm going to count God's Word more important than even food to me. Because God is doing something here. And whatever he's doing, I want to be a part of it. Because God loves me. Humans can approach the idea of trust in one of two ways. Mistrust or trust. When I was a child on the playground, every once in a while I would do a trade with someone. I I collected football cards and every once in a while we'd do a football card trade. Or perhaps it was at the lunch table and I was going to trade my potato chips for um, that Twinkie or something of the sort. And, you know, when I was trading with someone I didn't know very well, or at least someone I didn't trust very well, maybe I knew them too well and so I didn't trust them, the transaction would go as follows. He has something I want and I have something he wants. I don't trust him and I feel like if I give him what he wants, before he's given me what I want, then I might not get what I want from him. He feels the same way about me. And so what do we do? I take the bag of potato chips and I hold it out to him and he takes that Twinkie and he holds it out to me and I put one hand on the potato chips and I have one hand on the Twinkie and he has one hand on the potato chips and one hand on the Twinkie and we say on three. One, two, three and nothing happens. Because I'm not going to let go because he might not let go and then he'll have both and I won't have anything. So we say, okay, we've got to figure this out. Let's do it again. One, two, and eventually it works out, right? Eventually he gets what he wants, I get what I want and we're okay. That's the idea of mistrust. Now, of course, this is an extreme example, but you know, perhaps we do this in our own lives. Perhaps we do this with our parents or with our spouse, treating them in such a way to exhibit some element of mistrust. I won't take the trash out because she didn't put the screwdriver back when she was finished with it. I won't scratch your back till you scratch mine. I don't trust you to do what you're going to do, so I'm not going to do what I'm going to do. I won't eat my vegetables because mom and dad won't give me dessert. Whatever the case may be, examples of mistrust. How often do we do the same thing with God? God, I'm going to give that to you, but you've got to give something to me first. And we'll count to three and we'll let go at the same time. But then there's the idea of true trust. My wife and I went with the Preyman children and the Zakes children rock climbing this past week. And I gave an illustration of rock climbing in Sunday school. I'm going to give another one in, in the Sunday morning service. It's so, such a wonderful parallel. In rock climbing, you have to have a lot of trust in your equipment. They have two sorts of climbing that you can do at a, at a more novice level, you can either use what's called an auto belay, or you can do what's called a top rope belay. An auto belay has either a hydraulic or a magnetic system whereby when you're climbing and a rope is attached to you that rope is being pulled up with you as you go and when you let go the machine lets you down at a consistent rate. A top rope is where as you climb a person is at the bottom pulling the rope up and when you let go they hold you. And then when you're ready to get down, they physically let you down. Well, both of those systems demand a great deal of trust because as you are climbing that wall, you are trusting that your harness is on properly and that it's going to hold you when you fall. You are trusting that that rope is strong enough to hold you when you fall. And if you're being belayed, you're trusting that that person at the bottom is going to hold you when you fall. If you're being auto belayed, then you're trusting that that machine behind the wall is being trusted or can be trusted when you fall. Did they inspect the machine that morning? Was it working properly? Was it catching? Were the gears oiled? Were the pulleys right? Is there a missed thread? There's a lot of trust when you get on a rock wall. And as you're climbing and you hit the top of that and you get to the top and you let go, you are putting every ounce, you are putting the faith of your very life in that harness and that rope. That is trust. Now, it's not blind faith it's not blind trust because you see the person coming down slowly next to you and you saw someone climb up and down the route before you you see that this stuff works but there's an element of trust there there's another illustration that's somewhat common story goes that a man was walking in the desert he had had a plane crash and he was walking in the desert and he comes to a well and as he gets to this well a small oasis there's some empty buckets there and there's a pump And there is a small jug of water next to that pump and there's a sign and it says water is to prime the pump pour all of the water every drop of the water into the pump and the pump will be primed and you can get water out of the pump if you do not prime the pump the pump will not pump water the pump must be primed well that man has a decision to make he can either in the middle of a desert Drink that water there because he doesn't trust the sign what happens if he pours the water in and the pump doesn't prime what happens if no water comes out then he has just lost the only water he has he can look at it with mistrust or he can trust and he can pour the water in and see what happens well the man trusts the sign he pours the water in all of the water into that pump the pump primes and it begins pumping water He has enough water to get a a good drink. He even takes a shower and there's some empty canteens there. He was able to fill those canteens. Leave his empty ones there. And then he took that jug and he filled it with water. And he took that jug and he put it next to the pump and he put a sign on that pump that says, Prime the pump. Trust me, it works. And he goes on his way. The idea of trust. That is trust. Why is trust so difficult? Why is it so difficult when you get up on that rock wall to get more than 10 feet up? Say, okay, well, if I fell from this distance, I'd at least not die. So I'm just going to... This is as high as I'm going to go. Why is it so different to get up to 20 feet and to 30 feet when we've seen people all around us doing it, when we know we've double-checked our equipment? Why is it so difficult when you come to an oasis in a parched desert and you see that little thing of water that says prime the pump and you'll get all you need but you don't know if you can trust it because trust just like love makes us vulnerable trust makes us vulnerable to pain and to loss have you ever trusted someone that has failed you have you ever trusted someone to get a job done and they haven't gotten it done and it needed to get done and they didn't do it and it caused great problems? Have you ever trusted someone and they, ha- they went back on your trust and it caused you tremendous pain, tremendous heartache, tremendous trials? And so trust is difficult because when we trust somebody, we are placing ourselves in their care. We are making ourselves vulnerable to them. Well, Job's determination here was a very simple concept in theory, but a difficult concept in practice. Job knew God's character enough to trust that even though things were bad, even though he was in the midst of terrible circumstances, he was not going to pay God back with bad behavior. He was not going to pay God back with bad, he was not going to pay bad circumstances back With bad behavior. He was not going to disobey God's word because things weren't going the way he wanted them to, because God wasn't giving him what he wanted. So Job said, Even though things are going bad, I am going to trust that God loves me. I'm going to trust that God is in control, and I am going to keep serving God and keep loving God. And when He has finally tried me enough, I will be a better, more refined servant of God for his use. Job says, it is enough that God has a plan for me. I'm going to rest in God's love and in God's plan and I'm going to serve God faithfully. In Job 24, Job also says, it is enough that God has a plan for the wicked. Just as Job trusted that his patient obedience would be rewarded by God in time, That in the end, obeying God was better because he trusted God's word. Even though his circumstances were not reflecting wonderful times for him, he trusted God's word. So too in chapter 24, Job was confident that wickedness will one day be rewarded according to its evil. In verses 2 through 19 of chapter 24, Job gives a description of the actions of the wicked. He says these men are thieves. They have no regard to the claims of other people's property. These men think only of themselves. They seek themselves and the good of themselves at the expense of others. These men pursue the lust of their own flesh, going after all manner of perversions. All these bad people that Job could look at were fine, were happy, were were plenty content. While Job was in the midst of his greatest suffering. But Job's trust in God compels him to remember not just where they are now, but their end destination. In verses 20 through 25, Job describes these men as exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. God will one day bring them low. The day that they stand before God will be a dark day for those who do not serve and love God. The day of judgment will be a day of terror for the wicked. Just as Job trusted that God would be faithful to reward his own faithfulness, he trusted that God would be faithful to reward the unrighteousness of the wicked. So as we close this morning, I'd like to ask you about trust. How much do you trust God? Sure. You know, it's easy to say, I trust God and will obey Him when you are blessed with abundance. It's easy to say, I trust God and will obey Him. It's easy to thank God for our daily bread when our daily bread is assured. When our health is fine. It's easy to trust God when the consequences for trusting Him are so minimal. But what happens when life... Falls apart? What happens when you have lost your family or your possessions or your health and you sit in a heap of ashes without anything and you are scorned by all who know you? When that day comes, will you still obey God? When that day comes, will you still trust that God is in control? When that day comes, will you still trust that God loves you and knows what's best for you? When the wicked prosper and the righteous are hunted down and killed, As they are in many countries today, will you trust God and obey Him still? You know, there are some in here who are in the midst of these very trials right now. May I speak to you for a moment? Serve God in the midst of your trials, serve God in the midst of the difficulties. God loves you. He has your best interests in mind. He is not in heaven laughing at your circumstances, nor has He turned a blind eye to your needs. He knows you. He knows the way that you take. And when He has tried you, as you follow Him, as you remain in the way, as you do His will, as you obey His commandments, you will come forth as God gold trust trust that though you don't always know the why of the actions God is taking in your life of the circumstances you are going through of the things which he allows know that they are for your good for your best interests no matter how hard they are no matter how bad they seem And may I also encourage you by reminding you that you are in good company, those of you that are finding yourself in trials and tribulations today, because there was once a man named Job. This man served God. This man loved God with all his heart. This man was perfect and upright in his generations. And his life fell to pieces around him. But while his life fell to pieces around him, and even his friends and family were calling upon him to curse God and die, he remained faithful to God. Everything changed in his life in a moment, but he knew that his God had not changed. God loves you, God knows your trials. And God is in control. Trust Him. Draw close to Him. Lean upon Him. Sometimes as a father, I will allow my daughter to get into tough situations. I'm watching her. I'm protecting her. I am loving her. But there is a lesson she needs to learn. And I will allow her to get into a difficult situation to help her learn that lesson. Other times as a father, I will withhold temporary goods from my daughter in order to instill in her stronger character for the trials that she's going to face later on in life. There's nothing cruel in these circumstances. All that is happening is the foresight of a loving father who wants his best for his child. And all that I desire of my child is that she would lovingly trust that I know what is best for her and submit to my careful guidance in her life. On the day of trial... Will you be able to say, as Job did, but he knoweth the way that I take? When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than necessary food. And so I bring you back to a theme as we close, a theme which we haven't touched on for some time, but a theme which runs all the way throughout the book of Job. And we must remember, we do not serve and love God because of what He does for us. We serve and love God because of who He is.